Welcome to the Clear Choices Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Eigner, and it is my unique privilege to bring you intriguing conversations with people who have made the bold choices necessary to elevate their lives and create a positive impact on the world. By hearing their stories, I hope you walk away more motivated and more inspired to do the same in your life. Because we all have choices to make. My goal is to help inspire you to make more conscious and powerful choices, clear choices. Now let's get started. Hello, listeners. Welcome to Clear Choices. I have something really unique for you today. I decided I wanted to lighten things up. So I brought a comedian on board, but he's not exactly the the, the kind of comedian you might expect. Frank King is a suicide prevention and postvention public speaker and trainer. He was a writer for The Tonight Show for 20 years. He's a corporate comedian, syndicated humor colorist, and podcast personality. He was featured on CNN's Business Unusual. Depression and suicide run in his family. He's thought about killing himself more than he can count. He's fought a lifetime battle with depression, with thoughts of ending his life, and turning that dark journey into the soul of a TED Talk called A Matter of Life or Death. Uh, his website is called The Mental Health Comedian. So, you know, I decided to bring this guy on to lighten things up. Makes sense, right? Um, so, you know, we're, we have some a little bit of dark times going on in our world right now. And I did think uh, Frank would be a great person to shed some light on that. And he lives in Springfield, Oregon, which is the town of my infamous Oregon Duck football team. Frank, welcome to the show. And he's wearing an awesome duck shirt right now. Go Ducks! Go Ducks! How you doing, buddy? I'm good, you know, for the pandemic. Actually, I've got a keynote. It's called Social Distancing and Staying Sane. Do not worry about your mentally ill friends. Because those of us with mental illness, and I have two, major depressive disorder, chronic suicidal ideation. If you're relatively high-functioning, you develop over time a safe care plan plus other techniques to be able to get out of bed in the morning, put your feet on the floor, and move through the world. So I wake up in an uncertain world every day, pandemic or not. And you learn to control things you can't control. And I think that's a big speed bump for people who are working from home or, or stuck at home is, you know, they've been used to a structure at work. You go in, you do this, you do that, five o'clock, you go home. And now they're sort of at loose ends, A, in their career. B, the world is an uncertain place. You know, it's, it's, it's fading, it's surging. How long is it going to be around? I thought Google announced they weren't going to have anybody come back to the building until June of 2021. I, I read that as well. Which I think is a good idea because that way anybody who works for Google knows, okay, all right, we're settling in for the long haul. You're not still wondering when I'm going back. You know, it's it's a long time, but it's June 1st. Okay, fine. I can live with it. That's, you know, that's, that's a certainty in a very uncertain world. So Frank, tell me, uh, so, you know, you were very, you're very candid and upfront about, you know, the depressive and suicidal you know, history that you have, a, a pandemic like this and the political climate and all the social unrest, just all this stuff that's going on right now. Do you, how do you feel like that hits you different than someone who might not have that, those challenges that you uh, have been facing for a good chunk of your life? Well, I think I'm actually well-placed to survive it more so than my neurotypical friends, because I'm used to things being uncertain. Having a mental illness is like this. It's like Sisyphus. Every morning, you know, Sisyphus was the Greek god that gave fire to man, and his punishment was roll a rock up a hill every day, 
the idea being you get it over the top, you'd be done. But of course, when it gets near the top, it rolls back down. <laughs> having, having a mental illness is like that. You wake up every morning, there's a rock in the hill. Some days the rock is small, the hill is not so steep. Some days the rock is a boulder, the hill is Kilimanjaro. So because of that uncertainty, you learn to live with that kind of uncertainty and, and learn to control the things you can't control and let the rest go. And so for people with mental illness, if you're relatively high functioning, you know, therapy, medication and systems in place, safe care plan, mm-hmm. then this pandemic is not affecting my mentally ill friends nearly as much as it is my neurotypical friends who aren't used to having to deal with all this stuff in flux. I understand. So I, I have to ask you a question or make kind of a statement admission to the audience. And that is that, you know, I originally, my idea was, hey, I'm going to go find a comedian because my show's kind of heavy in general, like it's serious. And and the, the topics of the day right now are pretty serious and heavy. So I'm like, I'm going to find a comedian. And then when I came across you, I'm like, oh, okay, so now I'm going to find the suicide depression comedian. I'm not sure I've achieved my goal or not, but so I'm going to, I'm going to segue from that with a question. And that is, are you finding any humor in all this madness right now? Oh yeah. I, I was talking to a, a mentally ill friend of mine at Costco. We just bumped into one another and we agreed that we were both well positioned to survive the pandemic. And I said to him, you know, it's kind of like if you were starring on the walking dead for seven years, you know, you're dealing with zombies week in, week out, 26 weeks a year. And then all of a sudden there's a zombie apocalypse. And you say to your friends, I got this. We build a fort, we plant some vegetables, you stick them in a head to kill them. I, I've been here before. <laughs> I could do this. So there is certain, you know, there is certain, and I put up some memes, you know, the, uh, you know, the funny, you can't make fun of people dying, obviously, or people getting sick or hospitals, you know, overtopping. But if you are careful in your selection of the humor, that's how, you know, that's how Americans especially deal with, uh, triumph and tragedy is they, you know, they, they try to find the humor. The day I had to work the day after 9-11. Mm-hmm. And so I went on stage and I said, you know, people ask me, should we be, you know, joking about 9-11? I said, no, but should we be laughing? Absolutely. And I said, and I had some examples of how Americans were responding with humor. To they went down to Alabama, talked to some editor at a paper in Alabama that said, you know, it looks like there's a military base near here that's on the target list for Al Qaeda or whatever. And what if Al Qaeda came in? And and the and the guy goes to the paper, goes, Well, we got a plan for tornado, we got a plan for floods, we got a plan for terrorist attacks. Here, hey son, this is Alabama. Our plan is this, simple as this, lock and load. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, um, and the, they asked a governor, they asked all the governors, were they going to change their public appearance schedule? And, and in Mississippi, the governor goes, son, the people around me are armed. I'm armed. If they come after us, we're just going to take some of them with us. So there's that sort of gallows humor that especially Americans tend to use to take, you know, uh, there was a picture that somebody took a, like a bomber. And underneath the bomber, they had photoshopped uh, where it said, if you can read this. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's a, don't you remember they had the Statue of Liberty stand there and they had her arm raised shooting the bird toward Afghanistan? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, they're, that's what comedians do is they, they, and by the way, comedians traffic in a lot of dark humor that never sees the light of day except among ourselves. I've written jokes where I had to call somebody to go, look, I can't do this on stage. 
I got to tell somebody this joke. But you know, you know, you can't do it on stage, but you still want to tell it to someone. Yeah, supposedly Leno, after the space shuttle blew up, Leno wrote the joke. Uh, what were Chris McCullough's last words? And he said, "What's this button for?" Now that, <laughs> that never made nobody. Nobody ever heard Leno ever say that out loud. But I'm sure he called other comics and go, "Man, I got to tell you this because I, I just can't not tell somebody this joke." So, so did you seek out to work in the world of comedy, or did it kind of find you? How did it come about? I did a joke in fourth grade, decided I wanted to be a comic. Twelfth grade, they had a talent show. Nobody had ever done stand-up. So I did stand-up, and I won. And I thought, okay. My mom insisted I go to college. She said, because uh, I told her I was going to be a comedian. She goes, so, yeah, I don't care what you do after college, son. You can be a goat herder for all I care, but here's the deal. You're going to be a goat herder with a college degree. <laughs> and so I went to Chapel Hill, got a couple of degrees, moved to San Diego. And just by chance, there's a comedy store there that's connected to the one on Sunset. Uh, a branch of, and I, I would drive by there and feel this magnetic pull. So I did what I teach aspiring comics to do. Go to amateur night, open mic twice, see how bad 75% of the people are. And then that'll give you the courage to get up. And so third time I got up and I don't recall the entire five minutes, but, uh, fish out of water is a great premise. Mm-hmm. I moved from North Carolina to California. There's a lot of, a lot of cultural difference. And the joke I remember is, um, I'd never seen guacamole. I'd never even seen an avocado because I grew up you know, in North Carolina in the 60s and 70s. Doritos were the only Mexican food we had. <laughs> so uh, I'm at a cocktail party. I pick up a chip. I'm headed for the bowl. I look down just in time to see this green goop. And I, I'm hovering like this over the bowl trying to figure out what it is. The hostess comes over. Oh, Frank, I, you're from North Carolina. I, I bet you've never seen that before. You know what? It's called guacamole and it's good. And I said, yes, ma'am. I bet it was the first time somebody ate it. Uh, <laughs> did you tr- head, did you did you try it? Oh yeah! Oh god! Yeah, I've been eating it ever since. <laughs> but at that moment in my head, I heard "You're home," and then my next thought was, "I'm gonna do this for a living," and I have no idea how. Uh, and a year later, my girlfriend, then now my wife of 33 years, we went on the road together. She just came along for the ride. We were on the road for 2,629 nights in a row, nonstop, seven years and change. Comedy club to comedy club, beer bar, pool hall, comedy club. Then worked with Ellen DeGeneres and Rosie and Seinfeld and Dennis Miller and Adam Sandler and anybody who's sort of gone on to be, you know, rich and famous in the comedy business. And it was an amazing time. This is a comedy boom from mid 80s to mid 90s. And then I did some radio in Raleigh, North Carolina, my hometown, because they were hiring comics to be DJs. I took a number one morning show and drove it to number six. Yes. Uh, in 18 months, got fired. And then went on the corporate comedy circuit. And then 2010, high of the recession, comedy business dropped off 80%. We lost everything in a bankruptcy. Uh-huh. That's when I learned what the barrel of my gun tasted like. Uh, uh-huh. alert, I did not pull the trigger. I, I, you know, I was going to ask. I wasn't sure. I couldn't tell. But yeah, it seems like, it seems like you didn't. Yeah, the uh, <laughs> friend of mine who never heard me say that was at a keynote. came up afterwards. He said this, and I quote, Hey, man, how come you didn't pull the trigger? I go, hey, man, could you try to sound a little less disappointed? <laughs> uh, that's where the comedy comes in the in this, it's all funny stories about my experiences as a person living with mental illness. I had a meeting planner call me and she's well aware I stuck a gun in my mouth and, and I'm gonna do a keynote for her. And I said, Michelle, what do you want to talk about? She goes, She wasn't thinking. She goes, I don't know, give me some bullet points. But I'm bummed. I just let that hang in the air. She's like, Oh my god, oh my god, oh my god. 
to relax the show. I just couldn't let that go by. So that's where the funny is. And what happens is a psychological principle. If you have to tell somebody something serious, if you follow it with something funny and then go to the next serious thing, they're much more mentally prepared for the next serious thing. If you, There's a reason they call it comic relief. Right, right, right. It lets the air out of the, you know, and then it. Do you, do you feel like the comedy is something that helps you cope? Is it a coping mechanism for all the things that you're, you know, grappling with on the inside? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's you know, the old thing is laugh or cry. Um, tragedy plus time equals comedy is the formula. And the longer you do comedy, the shorter the time between the tragedy and the comedy. I had a heart attack. Not far from here in the woods, we're actually two miles from here, in the woods with the dogs, a half mile up a logging trail. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've got T-Mobile, so I didn't have cell service. <laughs> but I'm bum. I like that I'm one. <laughs> and as I'm coming down the hill, I'm writing the joke. And I get in the ambulance. I get to the hospital. And I'm in the, the nice thing about going to the hospital with heart attack symptoms. And I tell people this. Look, if you've got a broken nose and you go to the emergency room and you want service right away, Say this. I broke my nose and I think I'm having a heart attack. Boom. Nobody gives a shippa about HIPAA. They just roll you back into the back. So I'm back there lying in a great deal of pain. The nurse says to me, uh, Frank, I just have one question I must ask you. And I said, honey, I'm married, but I like the way you think. <laughs> She's trying not to laugh. She goes, um, no, Frank, no. Your full name is Frank Marshall King III. But what do you like to be called? Bear in mind, still having a massive heart attack. I said, big daddy. To this day, as a matter of fact, this month, I got a call from the cardiology office. They said, you need to see your doctor for your annual. I said, when's his first appointment? October. I said, thank God it's not my heart. <laughs> she laughed. She goes, yeah, October's as soon as he can see you. I said, well, do me a favor. Send Dr. Gundry, my cardiologist, a note and say this. It's not going to make any sense to you, but just say this. Big Daddy would like an appointment in September. So five minutes later, she calls back. She goes, you can hear the incredulity in her voice. She goes, I go, hey, what's up? She goes, Big Daddy's got an appointment on the 8th of September. I believe in being everybody's favorite patient, and humor is a great way to, to, to pull that off. Humor is not only a great stress reliever for the person delivering it, the comedian, but comedian's intuition is to try to lower the stress of everybody around them. So I wasn't just joking for my own benefit in the in the in the hospital. I was joking for, you know, because you want to make everybody comfortable. Do you, do you feel like your humor? Do you feel like you hide behind it? Is it a is it a is it armor in a way? It has been in the past. You know, it's a great it's great self-defense emotionally. Um, it's also a great offensive weapon. I mean, part of my mental illness, I believe part and parcel. My mental illness comes with mental ableness. I, I can teach you to write stand-up. I can teach you to perform stand-up. I cannot teach you to to process the way I do. For example, I'm on stage. Young woman's really drunk. It's a comedy club. They finally have had enough. They throw her out. As she's going through the door, she must have heard something sounding like her name because drunks are voice activated. She turns back to me, screams, F you! And <laughs> I have no idea where this came from. I just turned to her and said, not even for practice. And that's nuts. That's that's that mental ability that comes, I believe, comes with the mental. It's the processing. Now, do you think that when you say that you make you trigger a question, and that is, what are the things, or what is the thing you've said that you most regret? Meaning, like some funny quip came out of your mouth, and then when you said it, you're like, oh man, I really hurt that person, or that's embarrassing, or I shouldn't have done that, whatever. Yeah. 
I would say about 95% of the time, whatever I say is golden. People are doubled over. But there's always that. I've actually had days where I realized early on that today's not the day for me to be delivering any of that. For some reason, the world is just far enough off its axis that, you know, I usually, I used, used not to pick up on it so fast. But I would say something and think, ooh, today's not a good day. <laughs> yeah, because if that didn't land, then. then so, is it, so, so is there anything that stands out to you as like, yeah, that's the, that's the one I wish I didn't let get away yeah, <laughs> out so of my mouth? It can be, uh, I think it can be a very, uh, you can devastate people. Right. With the wrong sentence. Um, and I have in, in the past used it, used it for ill instead of good. Sure. Yeah. There's a woman, uh, I don't know if you know this, but in February, I came back from Cambodia. I was working a cruise ship. I was famous for about two weeks <laughs> because everybody thought I was dragging the coronavirus. And then what happened after the two weeks? The bacon ran out or something? <laughs> no, I, I got home and, and I was Google page one for two weeks. And then the pandemic hit full on and it forced me off page one. Well, I was on a, a bus leaving the cruise ship to catch a plane. Holland America's going to fly us all home. And I had a podcast appear. So I'm on my phone in Cambodia doing a, a podcast. And the woman in front of me, hang up the phone, hang up the phone. You're being loud. I'm not on the phone. I'm doing a podcast. It's my job. I'm not retired like you are. So I thought, okay, I backed up a row in the bus and I lowered my voice. She's still irritated, screaming at me, hang up the phone all the way to the airport. Finally, we get up and we're walking down the aisle of the bus and she turns and over her shoulder, she says to me, drop dead. And I said, given your age, I think you're going first. Ouch. And I probably <laughs> shouldn't have said that. It just came out. Yeah. Well, also it comes out if I get really tired, the editor in my head goes to sleep and what just whatever, as my mother would say, pops into my pointy head, comes out my mouth and it's not edited in any way. The filters, the, the filter's gone. Yeah. I'm on a plane one time and it's Southwest. And I, if you've flown Southwest, you know, it stops. People get off, but some people are flying through. Yeah, I was on the phone, and so I got counted in the through passengers, which throws the count off, and you know, and, and causes them problems. And the guy next to me, because he knows I've thrown the count off, says to me, and I'm exhausted. He says, "You got to get with the program." And I, big fat guy, and I looked him up and down. And I said, "I'm not sure what program you're talking about, but I'm guessing it ain't Weight Watchers." <laughs> and and that was fat shaming and I should not. Don't have to make it that personal. But uh, by the same token, you know, you can cut the tension with the right words at the right time. I tried to be a police officer during the recession. And they would always ask me, what's the connection between comedy and cops? I go, it's, we're paid observers. And we train to read a crowd. Because mm -hmm. when you roll up on a comedy club crowd, you have to read the crowd, see where they are, feel where they are. And when yeah. you roll up on a scene... You need to know what the crowd, you know, what the mood of the crowd is. Uh, I said, I'm at the airport. Flight's delayed, mechanical problem. Everybody at the gate's cranky. I said, so I'm waiting for an opportunity to break the tension. So I'm standing on our television. Above me, the television's running CNN. And the guy next to me goes, how do we get this TV turned to Fox News? And I said loud so everybody can hear me. Well, you kill me first. <laughs> place explode. Now, there's... They're still in a bad mood, but they're, you know, they've laughed. That's funny. Yeah. So that's, that's the power of, you know, um, of comedy. So let me ask you a question. You, 
you know, you, you perform a lot in various different, you know, vehicles. And there's got to be days where you don't want to, you're not up for it. You don't want to be doing it. Just like all of us, you know, there's days I don't want to do the podcast, but I have one scheduled. Or there's days I don't want to work out or days I don't want to work or days I don't want to teach, whatever. So how do you, Frank, when you're about to go on stage and it's one of those days where you're like, I do not want to be here. How do you, what's the choices you make? How do you line it up so you can be your best? Well, you got to understand the crowd. I mean, they care about me. And if I told them whatever the problem was, they would understand if I wasn't on my game or I couldn't finish the show. But that's, you know, it's, that's not the deal. They, they came for a show and, and it's my job to deliver. And so as, as I said to my comedy students, that's why they call it acting. Mm-hmm. So I paste on the smile uh, and go through the 45 minutes as if nothing is wrong. I got, I got a call from a friend as my mother was passing away. She's winding down to cancer. I get a call right before a show. says, your mom passed. And the next thing I hear is, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome. I had to go out and do 45 minutes as if nothing was amiss. And how did you do in that show? I had a great show. You just go into another place. And- were you thinking about your mom during the show? Like, were you split between your act and what had just happened? No, you know, it's it's one of those you can tune that out when need, if need be. You just have to put it off to this, like, you know, compartmentalize and get through the 45 minutes. I've even done it when I was wretchedly sick. I was in Denver, did a show, a friend of mine in the audience, came out to see me. I come off stage, he goes, hey, man, I want to get a beer. And I go, I can't get a beer. I'm really sick. And he goes, wait a minute. I just heard you do 45 minutes. No idea you had a wretched cold. How do you pull that off? Interesting. That's, that's, that's a good lesson for everybody, you know, because we we're all faced with that sometimes every day. <laughs> yeah, here's the worst. Here's the worst it ever got. I was a diff, in the beginning of my cruise career. We're in the Caribbean. We call it the trailing edge of a hurricane. The ship was like this. Mm-hmm. And I, w- I threw up three times before the first show. And so the cruise director stood in the wings with a trash can with a liner <laughs> in case I had to run over, throw up, and go back out on stage. I did two full 45-minute shows, nauseous beyond belief. Did you do any jokes about nausea? No, because if you do that, <laughs> you know, it's contagious. Uh, <laughs> and actually, I went downstairs to the, you know, the doctor, and he gave me a shot of an old drug called Phenagrin. Mm-hmm. And man, it's like magic. And he goes, right, look. It's, it's, a, it's a generic drug. It's pennies per pill. Go to your doctor. Tell me you work cruise boats. Get them. And it's, I've been through 50 foot seas, people throwing up all around me. Finnegan, yep. uh, Zofran is the later version. So tell me, you've been married 33 years. Yeah. How has the humor helped and how has the humor, you know, become a, you know, point of contention? I've, I've got to think sometimes that. You know, in a relationship, it's like, hey, Frank, be serious or whatever. Well, most comedians, a lot not most, a lot of comedians never cut it off, never, ever turn it off. I've flown next to people for four hours and I, I like to hear their stories. So I ask leading questions, never really talk about myself. And then at the end of the flight, as we're coming in, they go, what do you do? I'm a comedian. Oh, you don't seem that funny. Well, I'm off the clock. Get your checkbook out. We'll yuck it up. Um, <laughs> So I can get off. I don't have to be on. I've got friends, good friends. And I've said this. I could not live with this guy. I had to duct tape him to the bed, shove a sock in his mouth because he never stopped. He's on his third wife and about to get divorced. And it's not that they don't love him. If he just wears them out. Yeah. Yeah. So 
every show I do, I, uh, I come in with a few numbers and I also come in with a quote. So I'm going to start with a quote and then we'll go to a, a, a couple data points. Just get your response. Okay. So, so the quote is, um, a sense of humor is needed armor. Joy in one's heart and some laughter on one's lips is a sign that that person deep down has a pretty good grasp of life. So what's your, what's your reaction to that? I think because of the uh, comedian, especially because of the absurdity of life, the irony that, that exists all around us, you know, I love irony, the ironic, you know, when somebody says something and, and you realize they have no ironic bone or if they're missing the ironic gene, they don't see, you know what I mean? That's again, it's a matter of processing. Right. I can, I can hear the irony in, and where other people often don't notice, uh, <laughs> hold on, let's back up just a second. You realize what he just said? Um, <laughs> yeah. So, and then the absurdity, uh, that, because that's what comedians, comedians get paid to spot the anomaly. And mm. the funny is almost always in what's wrong with this picture. What's, what's the anomaly we're looking at? And most people walk by it or, or don't hear it. I'm on a plane, a Delta flight. We're um, getting ready to take off, and it's the day after the FAA said, look, you got an iPhone or an iPad, you can use it on takeoff or landing as long as it's in the airplane. Well, the problem for the flight attendant is this. She could do the other safety, you know, the pre-flight announcement in her sleep, uh, seat cushion, oxygen mask, four-path lighting, and they're all very southern with Delta pretty much. She gets to the part about the, she's got to tell us about the FAA and my iPhone or iPad. And so she pauses, and you can hear her thinking. Almost. Finally, she gets inspired. She goes, ladies and gentlemen, Due to the FAA regulation, if you have small equipment, you can continue playing with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm the only one on the plane doubled over laughing. My seatmate thinks I've lost my mind. He goes, what? I go, that's for you. Before I can review, it comes back on. If you have large equipment, you have to shove that under the seat in front of you. So I'm down on my knees. Um, that's, that's, that's how a, a comic, you know, we're always on the lookout or the listen for the turn of a phrase. You know, the thing that doesn't, you know, because everybody on the plane heard the same thing I heard. But no one's laughing like you are. Yeah, because I process it immediately that way. Yeah, that totally makes sense. Now, um, uh, before I go to like a quick data point, do you, uh, and I don't want to get you in trouble with any of your employers, but like, do you, do you find one vehicle versus the other more enjoyable for yourself? Like, a podcast versus a TED talk versus a comedy club versus a cruise ship versus a corporate event, whatever. Is there one that kind of resonates with you the most naturally? Well, the, the, um, the, I won't be working cruise ships again because I got in so much trouble, but <laughs> I, I love the, yeah, I got fired by Holland America. The, um, the, the thing about the cruise ship was once I started doing suicide prevention speaking where I'm teaching people something, learning objectives, takeaways, action items. When I go on the ship, it's just comedy. So I didn't have to make any points. I didn't have to teach them anything or give them any action items. And I do a lot of, um, I bring the lights halfway up. I call it comedy and conversation. And I tell the audience, look, you got a question, raise your hand or shout it out. If I talk too fast. Tell me I'm talking too fast. And it's, it's, you know, I do about 10 minutes of comedy to get them comfortable that I'm funny. And then I go, anybody here besides me? I read open heart surgery and her hands going here, you know, doing setups for jokes. I know I've got. And sometimes they say the funniest, dear God, I have a joke about morticians, actually a joke about occupations, because I do a lot of conventions, different occupations. Uh, morticians, by the way, the, I said, you know, every, every industry has a joke, favorite joke. Morticians is this. 
What's the most difficult thing about being a mortician? Trying to look sad at a $35,000 funeral. <laughs> I go, if you're in sales, you'll get that. Um, oh, my favorite, though, is ophthalmologists and optometrists. Here's my impression of an ophthalmologist or optometrist making love. How's that? How about now? <laughs> One or two. <laughs> so when I do the mortician joke, I, I always ask, is there anybody in the audience who's a mortician? And the guy in the balcony raised his hand. And this is a 115-day world cruise I'm on. It's got to be rare that there's a mortician in the room. Yes. And it's a 115-day world cruise. And the longer the cruise, the older the passenger. So at 115 days, we're talking old people and their parents. Mm -hmm. So, And I'm only doing 10 days. But I said to the mortician, what's a mortician doing on a 115-day world cruise? He stands up and goes like this. Inventory. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. And that I like that, you know, that back and forth that because you're walking a tightrope, you know, because it could go it could go really wrong if you pick the wrong person and you ask the wrong question or, you know, has a heckler ever got you? Has a heckler ever just thrown you off? No, um, I've been doing it so long that, you know, you you learn what with heckling. The, the trick is. You never go to the nuclear option immediately. Michael Richards, when he's in that comedy club in L.A. and he dropped the N-word, that was the first thing out of his mouth to the heckler. That's not. And I was on a ship and there was a guy down front by himself, really drunk. And we we're talking about Michael Richards. You know, the audience asked me about Michael Richards. And I said, well, you know, you start out very softball, you know, gently, you, you know, and you ramp it up if they persist. And, and the guy pipes up and I go, watch how this works. Sir, I'm sorry we don't have a microphone for everybody. <laughs> As if on cue, he fires again. I go, look, I don't come down to McDonald's and knock the French fries out of your hands when you're making a living. And, <laughs> and he wouldn't stop. And so I said, see now, here, see what we're doing here? We're, we're cranking it up one notch at a time. And he comes after me again. I go, look, save your breath so you can blow up your date when you get back to your cat. <laughs> and, <laughs> and I don't know how clean this podcast is. I would you just, just do whatever you want. Okay. So the uh, the last one was, he came after me again, and I go, look, do I come down to the bus station, knock the dicks out of your mouth, and you're trying to make a living? No. <laughs> and by then, security grabbed him and dragged him out. But that's, it's a sociological experiment. When you begin the show, it's them and you. And if somebody's heckling, you want to make sure that the audience is as irritated at that person as yeah. you are. So now it's you and the audience against them. By the time I got to that fourth line, they were screaming at him to show. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're I can, on my side now. So what are you uh what are you finding humor in right now with these the these kind of key silos of you know major social issues that are going on, you know, meaning election and pandemic and 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 social unrest, you know, those kind of big silos. Where where are you finding humor in, or lightness in that? Well, it is difficult. Again, you've got to pick the right target. You never shoot down, you always shoot up. You know, you're always shooting uh, up at power, not down at the, you know, somebody who's perhaps, you know, below you socioeconomically. Right. Um, so that you're always speaking truth to power. Mm -hmm. And it's, I mean, with the current administration and the, you know, the, their reaction and what they've done, there's a cat. Um, you know, there's, there's funny in politics. There is funny in the pandemic. I've shared some memes, you know, just little cute little things. There's funny in just about everything if you're careful how you, uh, you know, the, the target that you pick. Uh -huh. You know, and I tell you what, a good target, and I wish I had, could think of a joke um, that goes with it, but the social distancing, you know, all the closeness. 
a friend of mine said, listen, at the end of the month, can we get a new family? Is that possible? <laughs> uh, you know, it's that kind of thing where you're talking about, you're really making fun of the frustration, not the fact that you're locked down, people are getting sick and dying, but it's the, generally the, the comedy, the funny is in the frustration with whatever the situation happens to be, whether you missed a plane or the rent a car is crappy or, you know, it's, it's the struggle. Yeah, and it's it's interesting, like this the, this pandemic and being on lockdown. I mean, I live with you know my wife and two teenage boys, and you know there really has been blessing in it. You know, meaning we're having a lot more meals together, we're cooking a lot more, we're doing more things around the house, we're having you know game night, movie night, and that kind of stuff, and it's awesome. And you know, I'm in a small house in West LA with the same four people for five months. It's like. <laughs> Can I call the suicide prevention line? You know, <laughs> you know, we, we play kids' games. We play Simon Says. Simon Says, Mommy Says, bring me a gin and tonic. <laughs> uh, exactly. It's that frustration that that's where the funny is in the um, and in everyday life. The benefit of traveling is you're constantly going out of your comfort zone and seeing things for the, with fresh eyes for the first time. And you know, it, it's there's always a struggle with. You know, with traveling, whether it's the luggage or the flights, or you know, they didn't pick up at the airport when they're supposed planes, to trains, and automobiles. Yeah, and I tell the audience when I get down, I flew to Tahiti from Seattle. It's fourteen hours in coach. I go, look, you, you guys, the jokes are free. You paid me to get here. Right. <laughs> you go to my house, no charge. <laughs> so it's it's that, fr- and everybody's flown, in, you know, in a in coach for hours. So it, it's very relatable. You know, how many people, the TSA, the thousands standing around, you, know, you do something, it needs to be relatable. You know, I'm at the airport and there's supposed to be a guy patting down a guy and a man and, and a girl patting down a girl and they're shorthanded. So it's a woman who steps in front of me, looks me right in the eye as I'm standing like this. Sir, are there any parts of your body more sensitive to touch than others? For sure. <laughs> and comedians hear two voices at all times. They hear the devil on one shoulder, the angel on the other. So what I heard when she said that was, say it. <laughs> You're going to jail. <laughs> For sure. So now you 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 know you've got experience uh and training around suicide prevention. Do you actually do comedic work around that subject or two groups that are associated with that topic? Yes. Um not so much comedic work. I do the suicide prevention speaking, you know, leavened with some comedy. Uh-huh. I've selected five occupations that have a high rate of suicide and they're trying to do something about it. dentists, veterinarians, uh, physicians or healthcare, construction and project managers. Wow. They, all, they all have a high rate. And why is that? What's the, what's the, is there a common thread? Yeah. With the uh, construction and project managers, it's that construction is male heavy, mostly men, rough and tumble guys. They call it male toxicity. Big boys don't cry. And so, They've got a higher, and they're, you know, they're the kind of guys who take chances and don't take care, don't take care of themselves mentally or physically. They don't have the PSA test. They don't have the colonoscopy. And they're certainly not going to reach out to a, you know, a therapist if they're depressed. They're going to, mm-hmm. you know, they, they pull yourself up by your bootstraps kind of guys. Now, dentists and veterinarians, they're coming out of school with anywhere from 350 to 500,000 in student loan debt. So financial stress leads to physical stress leads to mental stress. And if you're a dentist, you're in stress positions, you know, pretty much all day long trying to get the right angle on the molar to get the, so you put all that together. And then the veterinarians have the added bonus of having an easy availability to barbiturates. So they just euthanize themselves. 
Interesting. Interesting. So as we kind of get ready to wrap up, tell me a little bit about, you know, the coping mechanisms that you choose to use to get through, you know, life as kind of, you know, easily as it seems to me that you do. And a couple of times that we've spoken and listening to your talk, I mean, you're, you know, very confident and very funny and very smart. And obviously, you know, you've shared and not, not bashful to share. There's this, there's this dark side or a challenge that you have. So how do you, what are you, what are some of the choices you make around that that you feel like will benefit the, the, the audience? Well, I, and I've been doing this on podcasts, webinars, and I've done several keynotes on, um, so it's called social distancing and staying sane. Don't worry about your mentally ill friends because we all, if we're high functioning, have, you know, things in place. It's called a say, a self care plan. Mm-hmm. It's like this. It's diets, which is I do the keto diet and I, I intermittent fast. I have one meal a day. Exercise. I got an old Nordic track and a bunch of rubber bands. <laughs> and I got cat litter jugs. I got 20s and 35s. Because weights are expensive, right? So you got to yeah. use the kitty litter. So diet, exercise, good night's sleep. And I'll come back to that in a second. Uh, meditation. I meditate twice a day. It's a guided meditation, about 29 minutes, taking down, bringing back up, you know, the lower cortisol and all that kind of stuff. And then medication. I take medication for my depression. And what, what the guided meditation really quick, uh, what, what is it? Who do you, who's the, who's it guided by? It's a, it's a guided meditation called the cat napper. And it's by the Monroe Institute. And it's one of those with underneath the, the person talking is and the sound of the ocean is a binaural beat. So it sinks the hemisphere of your brain. Um, and it's amazing. It's the guy starts talking within 90 seconds. I'm just, and then I can feel. Myself coming back up, my breathing picking up on the other end as I come back, you know, you will awake, mm-hmm, refresh, mm-hmm. and so forth. So twice a day. And I mentioned sleep. They interviewed a guy in, a, in the space station who spent a year up there by himself, basically. And they said, how in the heck? I mean, that's social isolation. He said, one word, schedule. He said, look, you need to go to bed at the same time, roughly, get up at roughly the same time, eat about the same time, meditate. I always meditate immediately following a meal. And exercise about the same time, you know, and have your Netflix or whatever. And that gets your body in a, a, a better rhythm, a better setup to have a good night's sleep. Yes. And because, you know, you're used to going to work and, and you pretty much your day is structured. Now you're now you're home and there is no structure. You have to create your own structure. And then you sit down with the family and go, look, we need to all talk about this together. Everybody get your, you know, get your get a piece of paper out. We've got to figure out what everybody's going to schedule is going to be and how they mesh. The bottom line is you're controlling the things you can control and then letting the rest go. My kids would say, what's paper? <laughs> a pencil and what? A pencil and what? Say that again. Can you spell that? I bought this because I was having trouble keeping track of my my Zooms. It's an old day runner. Yep. I do the same. A page a day. I'm going to start doing that because I can't keep track. Yeah, it's it's very hard for me to solely keep my schedule in technology. I do keep it in technology, but I also like it written out. So, you know, Frank, I, I want to not only thank you for being on the show, but I want to, I want to kind of honor you because, um, you know, to, to be as light and joyful and, um, and bringing so much to the world as you do, given, you know, what you've shared is underneath all that, you know, it's, uh, it's courageous. I really, I really appreciate you. Well, and, you know, being vulnerable on stage, uh, you know, 
I get it. When I tell my story, I, I get a little choked up and to see a man on stage getting choked up is, is, you know, it's, I mean, it's powerful and it allows other people cover to come out and give voice to their feelings and experiences without recrimination. My job is to start the conversation. Mm-hmm. And my people ask me, what's your long-term goal with this? I want to make talking about depression, thoughts of suicide as easy as talking about sports or the weather. Well, well, and sometimes my sports teams make me depressed, so that kind of works, right? Yeah, when, I, when I, I don't get the points, uh, sometimes when I start talking, people look at me like, because I've said to somebody, um, do, you have mental, do you have mental illness? And they're like, what, did you ask? I go, yeah. I go, I'm crazy. I got two. Uh, yeah, it's disarming for somebody to come out and speak that, pardon the, pardon the pun, frankly about because my family, more nuts than a squirrel turd. So it's the whole family is on something. Uh, crazy meds, as my cousin says. Well, I, I can tell you that as a guy who is very open and, and you know, and I'm someone who will answer just about any question from people I care about. I appreciate that you're helping others do that as well. Yeah. They hire me to come in. They tell me all the time. We just watch in to start the conversation because, you know, what? silence kills. Yes, it does. I had no idea the guy had a problem. Why didn't he say something? And I teach people how to spot it so you can say something. And if you can't say something, find somebody who can if you're worried about somebody. No, I love that. I love that. Thank you, Frank, so much for being on the show. Yeah, man. Go ahead. I hope, hope there's enough funny in here. Oh, no, it was awesome. It was it was perfect. It was perfect. It was real. Folks, this is another episode of Clear Choices. Appreciate you taking a listen. Uh, as I've mentioned in the past, if you're interested in uh, some of the speaking services or coaching that I provide, just contact me through clearchoices.live and I'll talk to you in a couple of weeks. Take care. Thank you so much for joining us. If you've been inspired and motivated by what you heard today, please subscribe to the show so you don't miss an episode. Post it on social media, invite friends, and let me know if you have any potential guests. While you're there, leave us a review. We'd love to connect with you as well, so check out our Facebook page by searching Clear Choices. I'm available for speaking engagements, and you can find more information by visiting our website at clearchoices.live. And all this can be found in our show notes. Join us next week for more inspiring stories that can help us all make clear choices. Thanks for listening.